0: Well, Professor Ramesh Thakur, thank you for uh, for joining me on Based Podcast. We we invite people generally who are based. You are very based. I learnt that through uh, through the COVID period because I. I I started reading a lot of the stuff you've been writing, and uh, I think it was a bit of a beacon of, of hope hearing eminent people like yourself talking about this sort of public policy stuff. But public policy is really your, your domain. You're uh, a professor at the Crawford School of Public Policy now, and you're a former Assistant Secretary General of the UN too, by the way, uh, accomplished author, more books and papers than I could possibly list off now. Uh, what else do based podcast uh, listeners need to know about you?
1: Uh, Well, I think that covers most of it. Uh, In terms of a personal side, I was born uh, and raised in India, got my first degree there, my master's and PhD in Canada, and I have lived, taught and worked in Canada, Fiji, New Zealand, uh, Japan, uh, as well as Australia. So it's quite a wide variety of contexts. But through the UN system, of course, uh, I gained extensive intimate knowledge of many parts of the developing world in particular uh, throughout Asia uh, and Africa and a bit of Latin America also. So it's quite a broad mix of geographical background and academic and policy experience.
0: Yeah, it really is. It's a very, very unique skill set and experience set, which I think is why um, listening to what you wrote and hearing you talk about it has been and was so important during that period. And in fact, you know, one of the things that struck me is you, you really are and were uniquely placed to, to take that kind of view about what was happening because you'd seen so many different countries. You know, you had that experience uh, in public policy and in so many different countries. And it's just I'm intrigued consistently by what happened in Australia during COVID. And I want to explore a little bit of that. But I mean, just from the outset, is is it is it something, did, did we just witness one of the, you know, perhaps paradigm shifts in global policy, public policy in the last two or three years. It feels like that. I hear people talking about it, but is that that the way it feels for you?
1: I think so. Just to elaborate on something you just said, uh, one of my roles for the United Nations system was to look at uh, leading research from around the world and, if necessary, invite the researchers as consultants on short-term contract for the UN system and then distill that into policy implications for the UN that we went back to member countries with. And that means I was always looking at it from a certain level of abstraction and never in the weeds. So I'm not a scientist, I'm not a medical scientist or health expert, never pretended to be. But I do have a capacity based on my qualifications and background to assess what that means for policy, now admittedly for international policy. So that was one. A second thing was I had already retired from the university, and that meant two things. One, I had the freedom to explore uh, something that puzzles me, which I want to come back to as a final part. But secondly, also, I was free from the pressure of worrying about cancellation and losing my job. Uh, uh, Maybe there was a third factor, and that is that in addition to my academic side, I've been writing for mainstream media publications, leading national and even international outfits uh, for several decades. So I had a ready-made platform uh, uh, for disseminating my views. So that is uh, one side of it. Then going back to the, the UN system, in September 2019, the WHO published a century's worth of distillation of experience in research and policy development on how to handle pandemics, flu-like. And when the global pandemic was declared in March 2020, just six months later, we abandoned everything from that, all, all, all the most important things from that. Uh, and I know that science doesn't work like that. You don't abandon the century's worth of knowledge uh, and uh, accumulated data on the basis of one city's experience, uh, giving us data that even at the time, seemed highly dubious and has proven uh, to be totally uh, misleading. So I was puzzled by that, and that's when I started looking at it. And because I had the time and freedom, I I looked at various aspects and remained deeply puzzled uh, and increasingly worried uh, at the way that the world had gone. And that does worry me long term. Have we handed over control to the technocratic experts who hew to their own agenda and seem absolutely unconcerned about basic foundational values of our system of governance and our societies.
0: Yeah, and that really is the unique skill set that you have because you've seen the UN working close up. You've seen how a lot of these globalist bodies work, uh, and also, as you say, I think that that was one of the things you've written that I that I read that really resonated with me because it's so consistent with other areas about this business about needing to be almost in retirement with no fear of cancellation to be able to speak your mind. I mean, that, that in itself says so much about uh, the pressure acts that we were seeing uh, during COVID. I mean, we see that through climate change. People like Professor Ian Plymer, who, you know, has no fear of cancellation, you know, because he is, he's not retired, but he's, you know, not in the university system as much anymore. And we see it, I mean, sometimes even with celebrities, you know, often the celebrities that are outspoken about politics in the United States or conservative politics in the United States are those that are that are basically out of the system. So it really does say a lot, I think, about the controlling nature of All of those aspects of our of our life at the moment, but I mean, Australia did. uh, It it feels as though Australia became terrified during COVID. Um, What are your impressions of that? How did you see that playing out, and why why were we so terrified?
1: (laughs) Uh, Part of the terror was deliberately induced by some governments. We know that now. The so called nudge unit nudged into compliance. A part of the terror, I think is a increasing risk aversion of modern society. Uh, and maybe because I grew up in India where risk is an everyday reality uh, and you see death on a daily basis. I mean, you just have to go to any uh, dense populated area in a slum uh, or, or part of uh, uh, Mumbai and you're likely to see A Cops being carried along in the main street uh, every day. So that's something that you grow up with. Uh, That's been lost uh, in Western society. That is one second, one part of it. The other paradox, if you like, is a previous generation gave up their lives uh, in order to protect our freedoms. This generation seems only too happy to give up its freedoms uh, in favor of safety, uh, which inverts it all the way around. And, of course, making it worse is the fact that the incontestable fact by now, that the young people, especially if they're healthy, are at virtually no greater risk from COVID, never were, uh, than a bad seasonal flu. It was distinctively, if not uniquely, age segregated and concentrated in the elderly. And we abandoned the, the quality metric, the quality adjusted life years metric for triage in assessing where our resources and attention should be devoted. Uh, And instead of focusing on the vulnerable, the elderly and the people with underlying health conditions, we went for universal uh, recommendations and interventions that put the burdens and the costs way into decades into the future on the young who are very little risk from the disease in favor of prolonging life. Without asking us, by the way, everyone I've spoken to from my generation overwhelmingly would prefer to spend only two more weeks with immediate family uh, and the bonds and sense of belonging to that rather than another extra two years by being cut off from family. That choice was never given to us. So whichever way you look at it, it was a very paternalistic, top-down driven policy uh, that showed up an immense class war. You mentioned about the conservative side of politics. One of the remarkable features of what's happened in the past three years is how both sides abandoned what had been their core values. So I don't see the criticism or critique as really a right or left or center left or center right issue I, I think you know who would have which which true blood conservative person would have believed it possible that conservative governments would throw money like this uh without any concern for who's going to pay for it and and the left endorsing and barracking enthusiastically for a collusion between big government big state uh, big farmer and big tech big farmer. It used to be the better Noir of all good, true blood left left wingers. Uh, <laughs> and suddenly they're endorsing all that. So it's been That's greatly exactly. puzzling and it remains inexplicable.
0: It does. And in fact,ual there's been a lot of, uh, you know, cross ground correlation between left and right. I mean, a lot of people who, you know, might have traditionally uh, you know, not, not, been that keen on someone like me might have seen we had a lot in common. I mean, there was some of that ground as well. But I was very surprised. I was very, very surprised by the extent to which Aussies rolled over. Uh, you know, that's sort of the, you think about, and people from the United States would tell me this all the time, that they expected that Aussies were the the Steve Irwins and the Crocodile dungdies of the world. And the Aussie larrikin kind of didn't, quite behave in that way that we might have in the <laughs> 80s or 90s. Uh, were you surprised? Were you surprised by how, how you know, Australia as a, as a collective kind of just rolled over on COVID and, and started uh, dobbing in their neighbours?
1: I, I think that I was, I was extremely surprised by that throughout the Western world. Indeed, I had a long interview with one of the two leading national papers in Argentina, of which they publisher as the a full-page Sunday feature of 3,000 words, where I said the single biggest surprise for me was the ease with which Western societies with long, well-established traditions of freedoms and liberties and universal literacy just rolled over and complied with state mandates uh, that a moment's reflection would have shown them uh, was, were nonsensical. So, yes, that remained a surprise. In the case of Australia in particular, it did bring to the fore the Clive James comment that our problem is not that too many of us are descended from convicts, but that too many of us are descended from prison guards. Uh, and that aspect became a reality. And yes, it was a surprise, it remains a surprise. Having said that, I think the reason both left and right united on this was governments succeeded in their nudging message that we are doing this for everyone else. Stay apart to stay together, that contradiction in terms. You must get vaccinated in order to protect everyone else, not just yourself, which is an inherently internally contradictory message because it says that in fact the vaccine doesn't protect you
0: and well, yet that's, that's
1: quite all, right and yet the messaging that's, was effective
0: what the i mean and actually it wasn't it wasn't to be fair it wasn't just australia as well it was it was a lot of the western commonwealth liberal democracies we saw you know heavy-handedness in different areas i mean melbourne obviously had their fair dose but new zealand were pretty were pretty uh, draconian as were canada Uh, and the United Kingdom, perhaps less so. But it it, it did seem to be a feature of Western liberal democracies, particularly those that were perhaps a little more removed from war, uh, had perhaps a better time of the last 50 years. You know, we've had it pretty good here for this country. Is I mean, the world was in panic as well, but it seemed like certain sections of the world were in more panic than others. And and, what does that tell us about public policy in Western liberal democracies?
1: Well, if you think back over the decades since the Second World War. Hmm. There's two or three trends that sort of converge. One is, starting with the Cold War, we've seen the emergence of the national security state, followed by the rise of the administrative state, when power is co-opted by the administrative wing of the state, away from both the judiciary and the legislature, as well as the executive. Then we've seen, uh, apropos of Edward Snowden, the rise of the surveillance state, And finally, in the last three years, we've seen the rise of the biofascist state uh, or the biosecurity state, take your pick, whichever phrasing you prefer. So that's one stream. A second stream is we've seen the state take over more and more sectors of society and its share uh, as a proportion of GDP, the government expenditure has kept rising. The number of people who get some sort of benefit from the state has grown enormously, the proportions. Uh, and the net beneficiaries of state largesse as opposed to the contributors, that ratio has changed dramatically across all Western societies. So effectively, we have got used to the state looking after us, yeah. the state turning into a nanny state and a welfare state. And that comes to a climax in this as well. So all these trends, I think, are brought together. And, and you know, who would have thought that the word libertarian uh, in 2020, it would become a four-letter word for lefties. <laughs>
0: That's right. Yeah, it's actually well, everything is old is new again. It's almost the horseshoe effect, isn't it? I heard you, heard you describe it once as panic policy, mm-hmm. um, and, and you're right about the rise of the unelected, but can you, can you flesh out a little bit more about panic policy? I like that term. I hadn't heard it before.
1: Well, uh, imagine you have a major new symptom of an illness that worries you deeply. And you go to your GP and the GP reacts with alarm and obvious panic and says, my goodness, I've never seen something like this. This looks terrible. Uh, That's not going to be very reassuring for you. And if that's how your GP behaves, I suggest you look for another GP. It's the job of governments to calm the population, to reassure them, to say, yes, okay, it is a crisis, but we are on it. We are keeping a careful watch. We have the best people going. In Australia, we have just about the best health system, public health system in the world. Uh, and, and we'll see how it goes. If it gets worse, we'll give you the information and we'll provide the guidance. We are going to leave the decision-making to you in consultation with your doctors and specialists. But let's just get through this together. This two will pass. We have seen this in the past. This is equivalent to the Asian flu, the Hong Kong flu. It's a long way away from the gravity of the Spanish flu. Instead, from day one, we started saying this is once in a century like the Spanish flu, and it could get worse, and we don't know what to do. Uh, That was a terrible messaging, but it was effective in sowing panic. But if you look at the evidence from day one, uh, look look, look at the diamond uh, princess, the cruise ship, the Diamond Princess, a cruise ship of elderly people in close confined quarters before the disease is discovered. Some get the flu. You know, a small proportion were infected and a smaller proportion died in the worst possible conditions for it. So there was no basis for panicking. Uh, and, and the 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 big death toll in Australia in 2020 came from mismanaging the, the hotels in Melbourne and stuff like that. Uh, as for the severity, I, I think Australia had the worst of the police brutality and excesses. Canada, I think, was the worst in terms of the state excess in debanking. That, that is now familiar from the N- Nigel Farage case. That was just appalling that the government would take away your banking, uh, clo- can close down your financial access and banking services uh, because you're protesting. And this from a prime minister who happily praised protesters in India and praised protesters in China, but couldn't tolerate them in his own country. They're fascist and racist and homophobic and all that. So yes, it, 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 this is something we need to look at. I think in all the countries, and put in place systems and procedures to ensure it never happens again. I don't think we'll get there unless we also hold to account those who led us down into that path.
0: Yeah, and I and I, and I do wonder about. Uh, I mean, you're absolutely right about that. It, it did seem almost like that. As I said, through those Western liberal democracies, those countries, everyone had a slightly different version of it. As you say, the crackdown in Melbourne was probably worse than anywhere else. But, uh, you know, there were variations on the theme in other countries. But it does almost feel as though the system was very similar. I mean, there was a similar level of demonization. There was a similar uh, you know level of state induced terror, if you like. Uh, it, it did seem very coordinated to the outside observer. Is that something that's come top down? I mean, I, I, you know, there's, there's the side of me that looks at, you know, the WHO and, you know, its various ancillary bodies and thinks, well, you know, are our bureaucrats just taking what they're getting from those bodies as red and not challenging them? Is that a sy- symptomatic system of a lazy bureaucracy, which then feeds into politics? Or is it something more sinister?
1: I would suspect something more sinister, but not in the form of a conspiracy theory. Sinister in the sense that I would like to look at not just a, com- a Royal Commission to what the governments did, but I'd like an open, independent investigation, not into the WHO handling or the origins of COVID, but in fact, the placement of key people in the health bureaucracies and infrastructure around the world, including the WHO. I think that's where you will find that a small group has been enormously influential in placing its hand-picked people at the very top, who then give advice to the governments that get listened to because governments abdicate their responsibility for looking at something holistically. I mean, we have a minister of health, whether at the state level uh, or at the federal level. We don't and didn't have and should never have a minister for just one disease. And the Minister of Health's responsibility is to balance the different aspects, including mental health. The government's responsibility is to balance all the health considerations against economic considerations, against employment considerations, against the mental and emotional well-being of the people, against the economic future of the young people, uh, the educational opportunities for young people. None of this was done. Why? Because governments handed over control to the technical experts, and the technical experts, there is a very influential international network. You look at the overlapping CEPI membership, whatever that stands for, the Committee for Epidemic Preparedness or Emergency Preparedness of Infectious Disease, something like that. That's where I think the real uh, connection in the interstices of the international infrastructure of the health bureaucracy comes in. And they were handed over responsibility for making decisions on behalf of all of us. And because that doesn't extend into the developing countries because they're not so influential. The developing countries, funnily enough, on this one, have saved us from some of the worst excesses. It's the African countries, for example, that said no to the effort two years ago of the WHO to change uh, to go for a new treaty. So uh, I think we need to look at those connections uh, and hopefully some people will look at that. And then, of course, the, the, the monopolistic situation at a global level of the media and the social media tech giants, uh, and, and big pharma. So that's where I think that the big pharma, by the way, the, the, it's the same people go back and forth between that and this other network I was talking about as well. So I think that's been the most, much more sinister aspect that so far has escaped scrutiny. And that's where I would like to focus uh, investigative uh, efforts and attention.
0: Because, I mean, ultimately, if you're a minister or a politician and you're getting advice from the so-called experts who happen to be high level bureaucrats, it's a very brave person in this current political environment with the media the way it is, social media the way it is, that rejects that advice and says, we're not doing that. We're going to do something different here. And and so I think that's the message. That And what's certainly something I've been pushing for a long period of time as well is what we are really seeing now is the rise of the unelected uh, across the globe uh, and the rise of, the emergency, the emergency-led power grab, mm-hmm. um, and we see it through other mechanisms as well. We see it through through the climate change agenda as well. I, I, I would say a very similar similar mould to what we've seen I during so. COVID. Yep. I know you've touched on that. Yep,
1: absolutely. Yeah, It's so the same it's, catastrophism, it's the same emergency declaration, and because it's emergency, governments must trample over people's rights and freedoms. We must have the right to uh, stifle dissent, Uh, don't allow any questioning. But, you know, there's centuries of experience that contestability and open debate actually produces uh, better outcomes across the board. Uh, And we need to go back to that. Just to go back to the last thing, by the way, uh, it's not just a power grab, it's, it's resources grab as well. We now have our regulator, and I see, I think within the past week, the FDA in the U.S., and I, I was interested in the video clip of you uh, asking our people, the, the group of you, asking our people why they just accepted the FDA and didn't do the trials themselves. Well, it's, it's worth pointing out in those contexts that the one major government that did ask for independent trials was India. And Pfizer said no. And they said, in that case, we're not giving you authorization. It's not that we're questioning what you've done, but it's a different context. It's a different group of people in a operating in a different environment. Do your trials here. If it proves successful, we'll authorize. They didn't. The other thing that India did and resisted, uh, which is now reversed in our case and in the U.S., is that they're now permitting doctors to prescribe ivermectin. India, that was a state decision. Some states did it. Others didn't. And the evidence base for that remains open-ended rather than definitive either way. But there's just been a new study published, I don't know if you've seen that, of a state-by-state analysis in Peru. Some states went for ivermectin, others didn't. And it's a dramatic difference. And what they've done is, they haven't looked at COVID uh, statistics, they've looked at all-cause deaths and excess deaths. And it's a dramatic dramatic difference in the states that did use ivermectin. If that is correct, that means our regulators are responsible for large number of needless deaths with COVID that could have been prevented had this uh, been allowed. But if it had been possible to show that alvermectin was effective, then you could not have given emergency authorization use to the COVID vaccines. So I think follow the money. That remains so very I mean, important.
0: Just to touch on that, it's quite an interesting point. You're, you're saying that uh, if there uh, had been another alternative, there wouldn't have been a need for an emergency use authorization. That applies in Not the United need. States with the FDA, and we wouldn't have had the vaccines, right. which we want to get to in a minute, um, if there had been another way, that's effectively, mild- even if it was only mildly effective.
1: Well, that, 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 that is my understanding of the legal situation. It's, it's, you, know, you mentioned the similarities in the under international humanitarian law. To use nuclear weapons, you are not only required to show that it's more effective than conventional weapons, you're also required to show that it is necessary, that you cannot get the same results from conventional weapons, even at greater cost. Same thing applies here. If there are alternatives available, you're not allowed to give emergency use authorization to vaccines before the efficacy and safety trials have been concluded. That is why you had to ban ivermectin.
0: Do you think, I, I have often held the view that when the Australian people uh, start to understand what what happened through the COVID period, and in particular with the, the therapies that were given, which I am entirely sceptical about, uh, we know they weren't safe and effective in my view, uh, and I'm sure we share that view, Did, what's your feeling on whether the penny will eventually drop and people understand what happened because there are, I believe, um, you know, serious consequences that have come from this therapy in terms of all-cause mortality and other, other issues. Um, I, my view is that Australians are going to be furious when they find out what has been inflicted upon them. Uh, do you have any particular outlook on that? I mean, no. do you think it will happen? I often use the, uh, the analogy that it took a long time, if at all, I'm not sure that they ever did, uh, except uh, liability, that is uh, cigarette companies, tobacco companies. Um, but uh, in this instance, uh, it strikes me that people are going, and rightly should be, very, very angry about uh, what happened. Will we see that day, in, in, if I'm mean, looking into the crystal ball?
1: I think you need or we need to speak to behavioral psychologists on that (laughs) given the numbers that went along with the narrative there may be very strong resistance to admitting Mm. that we got taken in so easily Uh, and there may be a psychological tendency to rationalize the decision how well Mm. we and they tried their best for the time. Anyway, that's over. Let's move on. Uh, let's go on yeah. to other things. I suspect that is more likely. I hope it's not. Uh, but the only way it's not going to be that is, in fact, some jurisdictions do start uh, criminal prosecutions. Uh, and, see A- and in fact,
0: I, I, I think there's an element of that in with the journalists and the media class. I mean, so many of them were so heavily involved in... Uh, the terror, the fear campaign, if you like, and also with the pushing of this therapy, these vaccines, that it strikes me that many are almost, you know, if even if it's something as base and primal as a degree of pride, uh, we'll, we'll always struggle with uh, admitting defeat on this one. Uh, that That must be a serious roadblock as well.
1: I think so. Yes, absolutely.
0: Yeah. What, what about the um, this issue, this strange uh, phenomenon that, that that popped up where, and I think you talk about it in, in some of the papers you've written about, compliance becoming a moral crusade. Now, it feels like it's a relatively recent phenomenon. Here in South Australia, we had the Millennium Drought, which saw every person uh, in the city putting up signs saying, bore water in use, not using tap water. That mm-hmm. was the first time I had seen people using almost virtue compliance virtue, if you like, people showering with buckets around them and these sorts of things. Now, the rain's changed. There obviously was a drought. We now see that with climate change. But I don't think we've ever seen that more uh, stridently and ardently than we did through COVID, where simply the use of what we believe would be an ineffective tool, a mask, was almost a badge of honour. Some people are still using them. It's a strange phenomenon. But I mean, it seems like it's a very Western phenomenon. What, what do you see on this sort of issue of compliance as a moral crusade? Uh,
1: it's not just a Western phenomenon, though, because it's very strongly itched into the Japanese psyche as well. Uh, and it's a very effective argument. Uh, I think the need to act morally is a very powerful sentiment in human beings. Uh, that's what gives us a moral society, and, and we can't function without that. Now, it can be abused, and the way to abuse it is to nudge people into believing what they're doing is for the welfare of the whole community, including themselves, that the inconvenience to an individual is small and minor compared to the community benefits overall, uh, and if therefore those who resist must be demonized and vilified and othered and placed outside the moral framework. Beyond the pale, which which actually comes from the British the history of British colonialism in Ireland, that someone is outside the pale, outside civilized behavior, and treating them roughly then becomes justified. Uh, but you know, there's all sorts of dangers down that, and that's where I go back to my wide international experience. Uh, think of the concept of honor killings. The reason the word honor is used there: a man who's prepared to kill his own daughter because she has engaged in premarital sex or is saying she wants to marry someone for another caste or another religion, the notion that that is a violation of the honor of the family and of the clan group is so strong that a father is prepared to kill his own daughter and a mother will join in. So that moral element becomes a very dangerous element at a certain level. And yet that was encouraged. So we felt it our moral duty to snitch on our neighbors. I mean, we are back into Nazi and Stasi eras where we have to report, call in people who are viola- violating the edicts that have been passed without thinking of if the edicts make any sense. And, and maybe the person resisting is not doing any harm or not doing any harm to themselves or only to themselves. So it just we abandon thinking. We abandoned our critical faculties, and you wonder about, have we really descended to the level where mass education now is actually mass indoctrination? The balance between education and and indoctrination, the emphasis on critical thinking, the need to anchor policy and scientific knowledge in data and evidence, uh, I've been absolutely flabbergasted and taken aback at, at the abandonment of all that. And when doctors so, so come out, what, 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 and what when do doctors, so I don't know, but it, it, it's, it's all part of that overall trend. When doctors come out and say, you know, if you go out by yourself to the beach, that's a very immoral thing to do and it's risking yeah. the spread. But masses of you protesting in favor of Black Lives Matter, that's a public health <laughs> issue, so that's okay. And you think, wait a minute, this is, you know, there's something basically wrong there, but people accepted that.
0: And so, it basically defies logic i mean it it, does. I, and, I, and i and i and i think this is the thing that frustrated people like me and you during that mm-hmm. period was It didn't make any sense. We could show from a very long way out that these vaccines didn't stop transmission. Therefore, there was no basis for a mandate on any level. And yet, our public health systems, it didn't matter what you were doing, you were beating your head against a brick wall. So so I I have this theory that we are now well into and well through, if not completed down the other end, the era of the long march through the institutions and that we are now seeing a rise of neo-communism, neo-Marxism, whatever you will see. Um, This notion that the Marxists and the communists were once upon wearing uh, Mao suits and now they're wearing three-piece suits, Hugo Boss three-piece suits. There must be a reason why... Australians and other places in the West have become so susceptible to these kinds of things. Is it a case of the education system from 40 years ago, when perhaps I was at primary school, has let us down to the point where the critical thinking has pervaded all of our institutions, the corporate sector, uh, you know, the, the universities, and now our captains of industry and our bureaucrats? Or is it just more you know, just more uh, of a pendulum that eventually things swing. You know, it, it it does feel to me like 50 years ago for a variety of reasons, what we saw three years ago would never have happened.
1: Well, I'm actually doing a paper, which uh, at this stage I intend to do uh, as my keynote address for the annual gala dinner for Brownstone Institute in Dallas in November, uh, having been given the honour of delivering the keynote address. Uh, and my theme is going to be That to understand the COVID era madness, we need to look back at the decade or two before that and the rise and then the ascendancy of the woke agenda. Start with the denial of basic biological reality in insisting that someone with all the male organs recorded as a male, not, not assigned male gender, but recorded as a male at birth. Can declare he is a woman, and we must all be forced by law, under pain of severe penalty, to refer to him as her and she, uh, and the Euro prefer. And it goes on and on like that. You see the, ex- if you look at what's happening in the UK, for example, I don't think, to my knowledge, we've gone quite that far in Australia. But if you look at the UK, and the extent to which the woke language and agenda. Has, has insinuated itself deep into the public and private sectors. And look look at the reasons why Nigel Faraj was debanked, for example. The notion that banks would close your account because you were saying some of these things in your private correspondence and discussions with friends and family. Uh, I would not have believed it possible five years ago, but we have seen that and we've seen aspects of that in Australia. So all the... Denial of science and facts, the subversion of empirical facts and science to ideological beliefs and dogma—all that is there, and I think that provides the preconditions for what happened in COVID. So I, I'm trying to make sense of that, uh, on that sense, uh, from that point of view. Maybe that will work as an uh, as an argument. Maybe it won't. But I'm just starting that uh, as one. In other words, as you say. I'm still trying to puzzle it out. How did we descend into this madness? How was it possible for apparently reasonable, intelligent, well-educated people to go along with us? Some element of that is cowardice. People didn't want to lose their jobs. Uh, But even there, I'm disappointed in the extent to which that happened. You don't need 100% of doctors to speak out. You don't even need a majority of doctors to speak out. But if 10% speak out, Mm -hmm. That makes it very difficult for the state to silence everyone else. It does. They didn't, It does, and and that was very disappointing for
0: me. And it brings us back to the old notions of, of this, as you say, the swing in politics. I mean, we are now, and people like me who never would have been in this situation before now start talking in terms of collectivism. You mm-hmm. know, I often made the point that it was a shame there were only two or three AFL footballers that took a stand. I, I assume there were many, many, many more who were uncomfortable with being forced, you know, into this uh, therapy, into these COVID injections. Only a few took a stand. But, you know, if 50 of them had, uh, you might have seen a very different reaction from the league. They might have started to see, uh, you know, see a very different outcome and a very different position adopted. But we didn't see any of that. The nurses unions did not back the nurses in on their mandates. The police unions were better in some instances. The SA police union was slightly better. And they
1: they still haven't been taken back.
0: But they but none they still the haven't done that. Yeah, and in actual profession. fact they, they rolled over. And if you yeah. if you extrapolated the same situation onto a pay dispute, they would have fought tooth and nail. Mm-hmm. But the unions let people down. I mean, from where I sit, the only answer is people being back involved in the political cycle, wherever it may be, be it party politics, be it their professional institutions, sitting on boards of schools or whatever it may be, in order to ensure that we do get uh, that voice back in. Mm. Uh, But absent that, I I, I think people, you know, people are sitting prone on this stuff. Uh,
1: Having said that, Alex, can I give you a couple of more hopeful rejoinders to that? One, through all these years, right from the start, I have never been queried by my university, let alone rebuked, let alone told, you know, you're on your own. They've never questioned me on that. Uh, and that may be because I, my approach was always to look at the facts themselves and then work outwards from that and read the different accounts as to, which makes more sense to me. Uh, and, and so I, I think I was the first one in the country to point out, for example, that the New South Wales Weekly Surveillance Report, on page one, you get the claim that the unvaccinated continue to be disproportionately represented in ICU, hospital admissions, and mortality statistics. And then I look at those three, two pages later in the same report, and the numbers is zero, zero, zero for unvaccinated. Now, it is mathematically impossible to be overrepresented if your raw number is zero. So I was the first one to pick that out, and they stayed with that discrepancy for three or four weeks. And I actually said, you know, does the Minister of Health read her own report? What about the COVID uh, advisor? Do they read those? So that's it, I think, protected me to some extent. Uh, the second thing, on the example of sporting people, when Djokovic was deported, there was still overwhelming majority support for government on that. I don't think they would have had that support this year if they had tried to repeat that. So, yes, there is that awakening, but... The awakening is, okay, we've now had the vaccine, we are over it, uh, society is much safer. I don't think the awakening has gone to the next level of, we should not have been put under that despotism to begin with. So medically idiotic advice, politically despotic rulings and diktats, and the symbolism, the intersection of that, the Zoe Bula case uh, in Ballarat, which to me remains a defining image of the madness and the police brutality in Australia.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, the other factor to all of this is the, as you describe it, media malfeasance, which is a very good term. Uh, It used to be that the journalists would keep the politicians honest, would keep the bureaucrats honest in this sphere. That's their job. That was their job. And that that certainly did not happen during COVID, and increasingly I don't think it happens full stop. What has happened? It it felt like we woke up and, I mean, I don't know how much trust we had in the media prior to COVID, but there's certainly none now. Um, What what is it all about? Is it it just ownership? Is it that these media organisations are owned, or how does it work?
1: Partly the media has become uh, corporatised, and they're much more attuned uh, to the profit bottom line. Uh, Partly it's that they've been hollowed out and capable, competent journalists are few and far between and they're concentrated in the cities uh, and, and they exist in echo chambers talking to each other. But partly it goes back to something else I was saying earlier. This international network, if you think about it, one element of that is the Gates Foundation embedding some journalists that it is funding into some of the leading newspapers around the world. And they became, if not the leading, then one of the leading health journalists in these media outlets. Uh, So there is that network again, uh, that that used its presence to argue for the case. Uh, And and that, as I said, I think needs to be looked at much more carefully. Uh, We need to go away from 96% of the funding for the TGA, coming from industry. Uh, you, you, how can you have <laughs> almost 100% of your funding coming from the industry you're meant to regulate? Uh, so we need to well, introduce well barriers. The
0: TGA say, I, I have raised that myself, and the TGA tell me they, they don't think it's a problem. <laughs> it's no, a, okay. Sounds like a problem to me. Um, <laughs> but uh, it is an interesting business model, isn't it, where you, you have 9 out of 10 applications being granted, medical or medical-related uh, products, uh, and 96 percent of your funding on this, um, you know, on this this sort of uh, user pays system. I mean, I'm not suggesting yeah. there's anything untoward going there, but it, it would it not be better to have a totally publicly funded system at the very least, whereby there is no, uh, you know, there is no reliance.
1: Uh, and all the money we threw at the COVID, uh, I wish we had invested that instead in our health infrastructure, including uh, independently financed uh, regulatory agencies.
0: Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a phenomenal sort of uh, look back on it. and, I, and I, a Part of this is growing with the global world. You've seen the United Nations very close up, obviously, mm-hmm. and, I, and I am a uh, long-found sceptic of the United Nations, I have to say with no disrespect, but I, I don't say that uh, with anything more other than having a, a view on sovereign powers of sovereign states, and I, I understand well, the, the, no, the but, rationales, but uh, I want to I no, hear no, your let, thoughts let, on
1: it. Yeah, let me take you up on that. Yeah. Go back to 2020. Some of the earliest, most authoritative, cautionary warnings about the consequences of the path we're going down came from within the UN system. UNICEF very early on said, hey, wait a minute. What does this mean for childhood immunization programs with vaccines we know are safe and effective and absolutely critical for bringing down mortality statistics in the developing world? What does it mean for educational opportunities for kids in the developing world. What will someone who is a daily wage laborer and reliant upon his daily wages to feed his family, what's he going to do if he's locked up for a month? What will be the impact on his children? Well, they said, you know, what are the incentives now for putting the child to work as a domestic servant with all the education laws? And what about the risks of child trafficking, both with boys and particularly with girls? And the impact on domestic violence. So a lot of these, if you go back, the best early warnings actually came from inside the UN system. So when we attack the UN, and I've been very critical of aspects of the UN, we just need to differentiate which part of the UN are we talking about. There are parts that are still very good. That have passed yeah. are highly politicized. The WHO yeah. failed the test in this instance, yeah. Yeah. but yeah. it's the WHO that's responsible for eradication of smallpox.
0: That's right. Yeah, uh, this so, is the question I was going to yeah. ask. I was getting to that question: yeah. is Is it the case that we see good sections of the UN, bad sections of the UN, sections that need work, and sections that have been dragged down? I think you've answered that question. I mean, but I, I, also
1: as a final element on that, uh, tying it to what we were discussing a moment ago about regulators. The WHO funding formula has changed completely. It began with most of the money being assessed contributions that governments were were paying into the actual WHO budget. 75% or so now of its budget is voluntary contributions mixed from governments and from the private sector. I think the Bill Gates Foundation is the second or biggest contributor, but these private uh, fundings are directed funding. They tell the WHO what we'd like this money spent on. So in that sense, the WHO has been captured and, and can't set its own agenda and priorities and do its own. That's, again, a same problem. I think we need to follow the money and say, no, if we are going to have a WHO that is a necessary component of coordinating international health responses, we have to make sure it is genuinely independent and not just hand over decision-making uh, and budgetary responsibility uh, to unelected uh, people that have their own agenda. That's where it fails down or falls down.
0: And, and what about? And people are very confused, but very concerned in large parts about the, the international health regulations and the pandemic treaty, as it's called. Um, you'd be on top of all of that. And for the benefit of those that are listening, do you want to unpack that and just sure. explain the difference and the concerns? I know you have concerns. I have concerns. There
1: are two um, things. Uh, th- there are two legal routes and then there's the substance of the concern. The legal route is for a new treaty, international treaty, you need a two-thirds majority of the WHA, the World Health Assembly, which is the governing board, which is member states. And then because it's a new treaty, it will need to be ratified in member states. And that's a much more difficult process. And now that people are waking up to that, I don't think that's going to fly. But the international health regulations are already legally effective and binding as Member states of the WHO, even otherwise, we are bound by that. To change that, you need a simple majority, and then it doesn't need further ratification. And because of the money issue, uh, and, and you know the gold, the golden rule: he who has the gold uh, makes the rules. Uh, there is a possibility that might be strengthened. What they are proposing is that the WHO Director General be given the authority to declare a public health emergency or a, of, of international concern and be then given binding powers to impose things, measures that were undertaken over the last three years, like border closures, lockdowns, school closures, and be asked for more resources for themselves and ask Australia, for example, to provide more resources to another country that needs it. In other words, it's a transfer of resources and sovereign decision-making authority from the state to the WHO, and not just to the WHO, but but to the Director General. And the six regional directors around the world, they will also have the parallel authority to declare such emergency and use the emergency powers for within their region. Uh, I don't trust that. I think it removes the responsibility and accountability from where it should be, which is at the state level. I think all that we have seen over the past three years indicates that it will be abused, one, that it will lead to incompetent suboptimal outcomes at the behest of those who control the agenda behind the scenes. I don't trust that. I don't think we should be any part of that. I think at the very least, our parliament and its appropriate structures should investigate this thoroughly with submissions and with evidence and testimony provided in person uh, by some of the responsible people, Uh, and and they should be interrogated quite seriously uh, and should not just be a a Mickey Mouse effort to assuage public concern, but a real substantial investigation. What is this all about? Where is it coming from? and should we be concerned about it my answer is yes we need to be very concerned about it Uh, i'll be very loath to hand that over to them i'd rather even with all that we've seen i'd rather trust our system our experts our government than trust the who they can give us advice it's for us to take that on board and assess it in light of what our own experts say Uh, and i think we need to look at selecting a better caliber of CHOs than we've had, unfortunately. Uh, th- that has not been a high profile career path in the past. I think it needs to be looked at.
0: The, the uh, people often say to me, oh, this is all just, you know, it's all just irrelevant. And in fact, they have they've been the responses I've had from the bureaucrats during Senate estimates. There's nothing to see here. It's all nonsense. But I always turn to the example of uh, the uh, ban on people leaving the country without two, two doses of the vaccine. And when when quizzed on why that was, Uh, the health, the CHOs and the health bureaucrats during Senate estimates referred back to the international health regulations of the time to suggest that we were required to protect other countries. Now, we know that's a nonsense. There was not, you know, we weren't protecting them by having our Australians vaccinated when they left. But even that on a small scale shows how these international health regulations do affect Australians on the ground. And it is almost a form of tacit ceding of our sovereign power to a globalist body.
1: It's it's not Uh, tacit, it's very explicit. I I think you need to be able to read the text out. This is what That's it right. says. Tell me where I'm wrong in saying that this is a seeding authority.
0: That's right. That's exactly right. I, I guess I just, we've sort of, uh, you know, we've, we've got, I mean, there's so much more we can cover, but I'm just interested in in... You know, where to from here? We we, we have seen things that I, uh, you know, and they have for two three years have caused me to rack my brains about the sorts of things we can do to make sure this doesn't happen again. Political fixes, all sorts of things. Um, we do need a royal commission, I think, and as you say, a, a more expansive one. But what are the other things that need to happen that are practical? Because people ask me all the time, "What can we do? What can we do to make sure this never happens again?" What, what are your views on where the future goes?
1: Uh, I think we need to have a series of royal sessions with public uh, and experts uh, brought in, but a broad range rather than a narrow range of experts. I think, going back to where we were some moments ago, what we have is the frog in boiling water syndrome on a number of different issues. And as a result, we have ended up in a place where none of us thought would have been possible 10 years ago. And we've allowed that to happen because it has just under the surface bubbled away uh, and has caught us by surprise when it all comes together. So I think we need to look at the totality of the education system, the policy making process, uh, the balance between experts and politicians, the way that parliaments just abdicate on, on their responsibility to. Get information and accountability and answers from the executive. Uh, it, it's, it's, you know, <laughs> I find it difficult to get too exercised about giving voice to a small fraction of the population, when in fact the vast majority lost their voice uh, and, and acquiesced to that. Uh, and MPs, we need to look at uh, how well the aspect of career politicians are serving us. I think we need a much broader representation of life experience uh, in Parliament and in the executives. So all that, I think, needs to be looked at. Uh, Instead, what we have is this very basic breakdown between the laptop class, city-based, Zoomable, can work from home, and the working class that looks after the basic needs. If we had had total shutdown, if the garbage services, garbage bin collection services had been shut down, lockdowns would not have lasted that long. They lasted that long because the elite was able to have its needs met. And once the vaccine became available, then the truckers had to be vaccinated and it was no longer safe for them or for the people they were serving to be on the uh, roads uh, in Canada. That sort of thing. So we need to look at all that as well. It, 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 it's it been a subversion subversion on a broad range of foundational values and foundational structures of governance that connect and link ordinary people to their elected representatives and through them, give them control over what the bureaucrats and experts do. That has been reversed. We need to go back to the uh, idealized or if you like proper relationship between citizens MPs, governments, and experts.
0: Yeah, yeah, I absolutely 100% agree with you on that. I think that's been part of the issue. I totally agree with you on career politicians. Uh, Part of the issue, I think, is if it's all you know, politics is all you know, and you have nothing to fall back on, you're going to be risk averse. Uh, but there's so much more to it than that. And I just, it's been a great pleasure. It's been a very, very good chat. And it's, I've been looking forward to doing this for a long period of time. I really, really enjoyed what you were writing during COVID. It was a, a breath of fresh air and a, and a sort of a crutch for many of us that were, uh, were looking for answers. So thank you for all the work that you've done and do. And, uh, you know, thank you for being with me uh, today on BASE podcast.
1: Thank you. And to coin a phrase, it's been a cry from the heart. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Thank okay. you, Professor Ramesh Thacker. Thank you very much. Take care, Alex. Bye. Thanks. You too.